Last week I told you that chapter 7 was the high point for Israel so far in everything that we've studied in the Old Testament. It was the best of Israel. They were humble. They were prayerful. They were dependent on God, really for kind of the first time in a while. And the people pleaded with Samuel to pray to God to deliver them in battle, which God did. Now, when we get, when we get to chapter 8, the writer has skipped over about 30 years. Okay, So some 30 years later, they forgot all that. They forgot that they already have a king who will fight their battles. And that's where we're going to begin in chapter 8, verse 1. This is God's Word. It says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Now, if you're keeping up with the story so far, this verse should bother you. Samuel has been a complete hero of the faith until this verse. We haven't heard anything bad about him. But this is a failure. Hereditary leadership had never been done before in Israel. Gideon had rejected that idea for good reason. No one had done it, and now Samuel is doing this. So after the good news of chapter 7, this verse is actually a major letdown, and you're going to see why. Verse 2, the name of the firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, they were judges in Beersheba. Okay, Beersheba was at the extreme southern border of Israel. It was a very small community, which means that Samuel's sons were only given a minor appointment. Okay, this is not a big job, but even though it's this little job, they still do a really poor job at it. Okay, look at verse 3. Yet his sons did not walk in Samuel's ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So they were, in other words, they were terrible leaders. They abused this little bit of power that Samuel gave them. And they had this obvious love of money. And Samuel bears some of the responsibility for this. These are his sons. This is kind of an obvious failure of discipleship. And that has been a pattern for the nation of Israel. If you remember, not even Moses left a lasting legacy. His grandson started the first cult in Judaism. And so this has been their pattern. Verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Okay, so, hey, old man, we're done with you. <laughs> but pay close attention to those last four words, okay? It says, we want a king to judge us like all the nations. Okay, Those four words are important to understanding this story. And I want you to just kind of keep them in the back of your mind. We'll come back to that in a minute. But let's keep reading. 
But the thing, okay, the thing about the king displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So notice that God takes personal offense to Israel's request for a king. He calls it rejection. Now what's interesting is that God has already, He's actually promised Israel would have a king. If you go back to Deuteronomy 17, God makes provisions for the time in the future when Israel would be ready for a king. So the problem is not their choice of government. The problem from God's perspective is their trust in government. This isn't a political problem as much as it is a spiritual problem. He is indicting the people's lack of faith. And in doing this, God lets it happen anyway. Okay? He lets them have a king, even though they're not ready for one. But first, He wants Samuel to give them what I'm going to call the fine print. Okay, So He says, give them, give them the king, but give them the fine print. This is the fine print. Okay, Verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to His officers and to His servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to His work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be His slaves." And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Who would want that deal? 
This kind of reminds me of, um, forgive me, but it reminds me of the movie Aladdin. Um, y'all seen the Disney movie or the new rendition of it? Okay. The moral of the story was what? Be careful what you wish for. Right? It's kind of the point, I think, of the movie Aladdin. Sometimes the things that we want have unintended consequences. Okay? And at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, but Jafar, the bad guy, wishes to become a genie. Because in his mind, there's nothing more powerful than the genie. Most powerful creature in the world. I want to be one of those. But what does he forget? Genies get stuck in bottles. <laughs> So he becomes the most powerful creature in the world and then immediately gets sucked into a a bottle, right? Into a lamp. They become slaves to whoever owns the lamp. That's the story of Aladdin, okay? At this point in the story, I think that's kind of the point of Samuel's speech. He's saying, you want a king, but be careful what you wish for. There are unintended consequences to this desire. And he says, look at what is going to happen. And his emphasis throughout the entire fine print is what? And I highlighted it for you as I read. The emphasis was on taking. Over and over again, he says, the king will take, 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 take from you. He will be a taker and will give nothing in return that God hasn't already promised or provided. What you think you're going to get from this king, you've already got. But he's going to take from you. He's not going to stop taking. And you'll be his slaves. Even so, Israel refuses to listen. Verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. That's the end of the chapter. And what I want you to see is that lack of knowledge was not the problem. They have the information. They hear the facts and they still reject them. It was their opinion and the facts did not matter. Does that sound familiar to us, right? I mean, that's the world we currently live in. That is 21st century world, okay? We have all the facts, all the knowledge. I mean, it's available to us. But our own opinions and biases and stories in a postmodern world matter more to us than reasonably presented facts on any topic. And if the last year has taught me anything, it is that people are going to believe what they want to believe. 
We just are. But what do we do with this? What do we do with this story? What do we do with that, that heart problem, that attitude? Okay, what are we supposed to learn from this? I'm going to suggest a couple of things. The first is that it shows us that we have a tendency to reach for physical solutions to spiritual problems. It's the first thing we learn from this. We have a tendency to reach for physical solutions to spiritual problems. Okay, The people were understandably restless. They didn't feel safe. They didn't feel well governed. They were unhappy with their leadership. Okay? Does it sound familiar, America? It's just really uncanny how many things, right? Okay. But instead of turning to God and trusting Him, they decide on a human solution. The issue is an incomplete diagnosis of the problem. Okay, All of the physical problems that we see in this world, it's not that they're not real and they're not an issue. They are. But underneath, there is an underlying spiritual component to every physical problem that we face. And we will be fooled into thinking that we can solve those problems on our own if we ignore that spiritual component underneath. And as, as an example of that, I'm going to use um, today, I'm going to use the issue of poverty. Okay, one of the, one of the world's biggest issues, right? You um, can find it in any, any place in the world, um, even here. And so this is the subject of the book, When Helping Hurts, uh, which is a great book. But look at this chart, okay? Um, if we believe that the primary cause of poverty is a lack of knowledge, then we will primarily try to educate the poor. If we believe the primary cause is oppression by powerful people, then we will primarily try to work for social justice. If we believe the primary cause of poverty is the personal sins of the poor, then we will primarily try to solve the problem by evangelizing and discipling People in poverty. If we think the primary cause of poverty is a lack of money, lack of material resources, then we are going to give to the poor, right? But the book goes on to explain that poverty is so much more complex than any of the things that are listed on that, on that slide. And if we focus exclusively on any one solution... They suggest that we're going to be disappointed in the results. It's not that any of these efforts are bad, right? Israel's request for a king was actually a reasonable request given the information that they had excluding the spiritual side of things. Okay, So just looking at the facts, Samuel's getting old, his sons are terrible, we need a better leader. Everybody else is doing the king thing. Let's try that. I mean, it, it makes sense. But it did not come from a place of dependence on God. It was not motivated by the glory of God. Ralph Davis um, said it like this in commentating on this. He said, 
reasonable solutions can sometimes be godless solutions. As Christians, we want our efforts to begin with God's view of the world. We want to stay anchored to His evaluation of our need and of His solution to any problem. So underneath each of these factors, just to use this example, underneath each of these is a fallen world. It should not surprise us that there is at times a lack of knowledge, that there is at times oppression, that there is at times you know, personal sin as a factor, or that maybe somebody hasn't had the opportunities or the resources because we live in a fallen world, right? And underneath each of those obvious physical problems, there are things like sin and death and shame and guilt. Spiritual realities, right? Under the surface. And real lasting change depends on reconciliation between God and man. He is not going to let us solve our own problems. He is not going to let that happen. And that might make us uncomfortable, but that is the truth. And that's one of the things I think we learn from this passage and the fallout that's going to come as we study the rest of Samuel. Number two. I think we see that God will sometimes give people what they want to their own peril. Sometimes God will give you the evil desire that you want in your heart for a purpose. They ask God for a king, and God says, let them have a king, right? Um, Some of you younger folks won't get the reference, but I have to agree with Garth Brooks on this one. I'm glad God didn't give me everything that I thought I wanted. Okay, Those unanswered prayers were a blessing, am I right? But sometimes God will let people have what they want. Sometimes He will give you the desire of your heart, even though He knows it's not what you actually need. And there are two biblical reasons why God might do that. Okay, Sometimes He does it with unbelievers, and sometimes He does it with His own children. When God lets unbelievers have what they want, it is a form of... Of judgment. Okay, the Bible describes it as giving someone over to their sin. He lets people have their way to their own destruction. And we find this at least one place in Romans chapter 1. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For although they knew God, They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. And this is the part. Therefore, God gave them up 
in the lust of their hearts to impurity. In other words, as one writer said, man abandoned God, so God abandoned man. He let us have our rebellion. And in the end, this is the thing. We all do what we want to do. What is in our hearts to do. Every single one of us, born in sin and apart from the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, this is what we do. We actively reject God. We actively exchange what God wants for us for what we want for ourselves. And unless that changes, He will reject us. He will let us have our way and it will destroy us. That's the ultimate path, the ultimate end of someone who stays in rebellion, who stays in unbelief. But sometimes God even lets this happen with His children. Sometimes God lets even His children have their way for a season, not as judgment, but as discipline. We're going to see this later on in the life of David. Okay? He's going to let David fall into serious sin. And there will be major consequences for that sin. But God also used it. He used it to humble David. And then David wrote Psalm 51, which showed all of us what true repentance looks like. And so sometimes there's a purpose in it. God may let you kind of hit rock bottom for a season to teach us something. Here in chapter 8, God lets the people of Israel have their way, but He's not abandoning them. They meant this decision for evil, but God intended it for good. He's going to use this to raise up David's dynasty and to show us something about himself. Okay, so sometimes God lets us have our way to our own peril or to teach us something about himself. So that's number two. Finally, this morning, we're going to go back to that phrase that I told you to kind of underline, like the other nations, okay? What does it mean that they wanted a king like the other nations? Because 21st century Americans have a lot more in common with ancient Israelites than we think we do. And this is why. I want to suggest to you that the reason that they wanted to be like the other nations is that Israel in some way was ashamed to be different. There was a certain sense in which they wanted to be like the culture around them. They they actually became slaves to the culture around them. Which is another way to say they no longer wanted to be Israel. They no longer wanted the identity that God had given them. They wanted to be like everybody else. And that was the exact opposite of God's actual desire for them. God actually wanted them to be holy. He wanted them to be not like everybody else. But that's not what they were choosing. They wanted to fit in. They actually were trying to create a new identity for themselves. And I want to tell you, I believe, that so much of the conflict that we are witnessing right now in America is about this this thing. 
It is about identity shame. It is about we don't want to be the person that God created us to be. We want to be somebody else. And we are uncomfortable in our own skin. And we want to decide our own identity. And we want everyone else to adjust to that definition. And it is driving a lot of the conflict that we see. And it, it's thousands of years old. It's not new. They were doing the same thing. And the irony, of course, is that God actually created us, each of us, individually, in His image. Every single one of us. We already are as special as we could possibly be. God puts you here for a reason. Every single person in this room, everybody listening, everybody on the planet has a soul and is worthy of respect and dignity and love, not because they say so, but because God said so. You don't need a more special story than that. You bear the image of God. But it's not enough for us. We want more. Just like our first parents, Adam and Eve. Because you know that was their sin. They thought God was holding out on them. Something else that we could be if we just ate that. So, brothers and sisters, I want to ask you what have you made the king of your life? What this morning has your actual allegiance? What is receiving your glory? Who, are you, who or what are you giving honor to that is not God? Believing that your life will be better, that your story will have more meaning, that people will like you better if you get that thing, if you have that person. What is it? It's what God is telling you. Here's the fine print. Whatever it is, it will take, 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 take from you until you have nothing left to give. But there is an alternative. His name is Jesus Christ. And He is the only King who does not take, but gives. The only one. And I love that the way the Bible describes Him is intentionally an alternative to that. Listen to this. Jesus Himself said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His very life as a ransom for many. The only King that will not take. His kingdom is not of this world. He is, in other words... He says, I am not like the other kings. I am not like the other nations. My kingdom is not of this world. I didn't come to take from you. I came to give. 
And brothers and sisters, the call to repentance and faith is in part a call for us to walk away from the identity that we are clinging to, that we are so desperately trying to create for ourselves, to let go of that pride because that's what it is. And to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are the King. You are the only King over all creation, over all Your church. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray for Your help this morning. Uh, We acknowledge our failures in constantly seeking after things to define ourselves and seeking our own glory. I confess to You that I am just as guilty as any in this room of believing that my specialness comes from from something that I put in or that I've done. And Lord, I just pray that You would break us of that and help us to see that we have a King who's already fighting every battle for us. He's there. You're there. Lord, I pray that You'd help us to believe that, to trust our victory is won in You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.